When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Happy New Year to you. Whether you're listening to this show for the first time ever or whether you've listened to every single episode since we began in late 2019, a warm welcome. I'm Ali Maxwell and with me three excellent human beings and three excellent tactical and data football analysts. Michael Cox is here. Hello, Michael. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Happy New Year to you and all the listeners. That's a nice touch from you. A thoughtful touch from you. Uh, Mark Carey's here as well. Hi, Mark. Happy New Year to Ali. Um, I, I, you said before that this is the, what is this, the fifth, now the fifth calendar year that this podcast has been going. That's correct. 2019 Fantastic. to 2023, it's been a journey. Uh, Mark, are you getting a, a good vibe from 2023 so far or, or would we call this too small a sample size, just four or five days in? <laughs> too small a sample size. I've already spoken to the Southampton uh, writer, Jacob Tanswell, about um, Nathan Jones not doing so well at the moment and he's asking about any trends and I said four games, four games. There's just not <laughs> a big enough sample size. So we'll all hold our horses for now. Hi, Liam Thumb. Hello. Happy New Year, everyone. A, a tough year ahead for you. In one particular sense, be tough to follow 2022, in which you graduated with a distinction in a master's, uh, had a placement at a Cat One Academy and got your first full time role as a tactics writer as well, smashing your coverage of the World Cup. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, tough act to follow. Thanks. I, I met you. That was the biggest achievement that you left off <sighs> the list. Oh, this is getting wow. horribly, horribly sycophantic and nice <laughs> uh, on today's episode uh, it's it's a law isn't it of premier league discourse that that one club sometimes more than one but generally one club and usually one big six club is in a state of crisis uh, now the, the actual level of crisis isn't always specified and i think it's fair to say sometimes somewhat overstated uh, but it is also a fact of life if you're living on a diet high on Premier League, as we do on this podcast and generally as football fans. So earlier this week, after home defeat to Aston Villa, followed a Boxing Day draw at Brentford, Tottenham Hotspur were wearing the crisis belt. Uh, on Wednesday night, they beat Crystal Palace 4-0, which was a, a very strong response. Uh, Spurs now sitting in fifth place, two points behind Manchester United and Newcastle United, three points behind second place Manchester City. So this is a good time to talk Spurs and Conte and to try and, and do our best with it, to take a, a measured view of it, objective where possible, uh, and, and see where they're at and where they might be going. Before last night, Spurs had picked up seven points in seven Premier League games, while the rest of the top six were picking up two points per game or more. And I guess it was that that had tensions raised. Uh, however, Mark, last night, rampant second half at Selhurst Park, made all the more impressive by the fact that everyone knows Palace away under the lights on a weeknight is twice as difficult as Palace away on a Saturday afternoon when Selhurst Park is rocking of an evening. Very, very difficult fixture, but a hell of a second half performance. It's true, yeah. It's been typical of Spurs' season, hasn't it? The I think Tim Spears put it in uh, in his piece, second half FC, uh, that Spurs have been. But 
I think once they scored the first goal, obviously the, the game opened up and there was so much more space to exploit, which plays into the, the hands of, of Spurs, their counter-attacking style, which we know is a key strength of theirs as a team. Um, I, I looked into the numbers as well. So they had three direct attacks. We've spoken about that before as a, a proxy of counter-attacks. They had three direct attacks against Palace, um, whereas they, they had none in their, their loss to Aston Villa a few days before. So it shows that they weren't able to kind of implement their style quite in the same way uh, against Villa, partly because of how well Villa played, but how poorly Spurs played in the Villa game. So it felt a bit more like it get, kind of went to plan a little bit more uh, against Palace, scoring the first goal, picking off their opponent on the counter-attack and, and getting back to winning ways. Liam, a few notable performances, uh, certainly Brian Hill, uh, significant that that he had such an impact in the second half, particularly in the absence of, of Kuliszewski. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come on to Kuliszewski's importance really um, later on in the pod. But it, I think it's a big thing of having the supporting cast was um, some of the Sky commentary about having them, you know, be involved. And when you've got players like Human uh, Son and you've got Harry Kane, you've got two of the best finishers in the world. So really, all you need to do is give them enough service and give them consistent service. Um, it's kind of a problem that I think most teams have the other way around of, oh, we've not got the player to put the ball in the net, we're making chances and not scoring them. Spurs, on the other hand, are we just need to make chances here consistently and in the right way. Uh, and as we saw last night, um, the stats were, I think, the four goals came from eight shots, five on target, uh, all in a 25-minute spell, and the, the game was done just like that. Mm. Uh, Michael, Oliver Skip was notable for having started this game, a game that Spurs won 4-0. Uh, and and in, in pretty basic football folklore, you tend to look at what was different and therefore why good things or bad things may have happened. Oliver Skip getting some plaudits for his performance last night. Uh, what do you make of, of him within this Spurs team, within this Conte side? I suppose I've never really seen it with him. Uh, I didn't think he played particularly well last night. I thought Palace went past him quite easily. Um they played better in midfield than they had done the previous week, where I thought the midfielders sat very deep, too deep, really, almost on top of the centre-backs. I thought the game was really just about Harry Kane. Uh, like, I thought it was quite a bad game, actually. I found the first half really difficult to watch. I thought it was really flat. But I thought Kane's two finishes were brilliant. I think the header is quite underrated. I think a lot of players would be off balance or kind of connect at the wrong angle, but I thought it was a really good header. And the finish for the second. Kane! Oh, brilliant! Wonderful, ruthless Harry Kane with two. Tottenham tune it up. It's not the first touch or the finish, but it's the how quick they were mm. together. Mm. It's just half a second before any other player, I think, could could pull the trigger. And he's done that for them so many times over the years. I think he's two goals away from equaling Jimmy Greaves' record. I realise sometimes these his goal scoring records can, you know, almost be a bit overwhelming. But I mean, for him to be equal in greaves I mean that is quite an incredible thing really um, and then of course yeah they had more space when Palace pushed forward I think that's when Brian Hill came into the game it's where Son looked a bit brighter but yeah I basically thought this game was just about Kane getting them out of trouble to be honest they've got a home FA Cup tie against Portsmouth and then the North London derby against Arsenal how likely do you think it is that Kane may start the game against Portsmouth score between one and two goals, well, you can't score between one and two goals. Score one or two goals, uh, and then uh, and then, you know, maybe come off early and, and keep himself fresh for potentially doing it on on what I guess would be the biggest stage of all in Tottenham terms. It sounds likely one because he doesn't tend to rest many games, even these cup games he usually likes to start. And second, I think he's the top uh, North London derby goal scorer ever, usually running about a goal a game. 
in those fixtures over the years. So yeah, that does seem very possible. Hmm. Some things are just meant to be a, a, a big night for Tottenham Hotspur for Antonio Conte because, as mentioned, tension had been somewhat raised earlier this week after the defeat to Villa. Of course, one swallow does not make a summer, uh, and and we would like to touch on 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 really, I guess, the main sticking points um, from before that win. So, Michael, why don't you kick us off uh, in this period of of eight games or so where? The rest of the top six have been picking points up at a much higher rate than Tottenham Hotspur. But what would you say have been the, the key issues, the key sticking points? Well, it's the obvious thing to say, but they start really slowly. I mean, they keep on conceding the first goal. Um, and I do think that is probably related to the way that they play football. They seem to want the opposition to come onto them so they can try and play through them on the counter or through passing. But they just can't, they can't lift the tempo themselves. They can't kind of set the agenda for the game. They can't dominate the game in possession and, and really take the game to their opponents. So it's almost like they've just been playing in the second halves, uh, which they tend to be pretty good at, but they often are finding themselves 1-0 down. The curious thing is that actually they have been quite good at launching comebacks. And those are the situations where the opposition aren't coming onto them for obvious reasons. So it's all been a bit of a contradiction, really. I don't, I mean, I don't think the kind of first half, second half thing is in any way a strategy. I don't think they're just kind of waiting and using their fitness late on. I saw an interview with Kulusevski where he said, yeah, we just don't know why we're starting uh, so slowly. So it's been a slightly confusing one. They're they're a difficult team to get your head around Tottenham, to be honest. I think we've spoken about this before on this podcast that they they don't tend to be able to sustain attacks very well because of the nature of their counter-attacking style. So it seems like they are kind of reliant on the few attacking opportunities that they do have. They're clinical in taking them, which... I think Spurs haven't, the attack hasn't necessarily been the issue. I think are they the third highest goal scorers in the, the Premier League so far? So it's not necessarily that they are kind of struggling in front of goal, but I know that you asked the question about the Premier League, Ali, but I covered them, um, this is going back, I think the, the penultimate game before the World Cup, but I covered them as a Spurs reporter for their Carabao Cup game with, with Nottingham Forest. And I think it is relevant because they played pretty much their their strongest 11 during that game. And as well as the overall performance just being poor to be honest it seems that they just were sort of terrible at working the ball from back to front when the sort of the onus was on them to to actually attack and not as I say implement that sort of counter-attacking style and they did have Son Kulisevsky um, out Richarlison out as well so I think so they had Kane and, and even Perisic um, up front so it wasn't quite their their main attacking line but they just couldn't really think of any kind of solutions within the game of when they have the ball starting out from the back how do they go about working it into a dangerous area? And they just seem to, it just seemed to break down each time they kind of got into that area when they're not, as I say, implementing that kind of counter-attacking style. So, I mean, Michael said it before that when the, the onus is on them to take the game to the opponent who's maybe sitting off and playing in a, a mid to lower block, they, they just can't seem to, to find those solutions. Whereas if they come a bit more toe-to-toe with teams or, or soak up that pressure and then spring forward, um, obviously, as as is well established, it's it seems to be marked far more kind of suited to their style. But it, I think it's a fairly common issue among top sides that sometimes they struggle to break down opponents who sit in a lower block, but it really just doesn't seem natural to, to Conte Spurs at all. As Michael says, their first halves have been really poor. I looked at their last nine first halves and they've had just one goal in that time. So for a team, as, as Mark says, to score so many, but do it so disproportionately, um, 
is, is incredibly weird. It's maybe a style that we associate more with um, a team with lower quality that want to sit off more. And normally, I guess that counter-attacking approach is you want to keep the game either level or as, you know, as close as possible for as long as possible. Um, and then when teams start to fatigue, players get tired. Um, I thought it became quite clear that Palace made quite a few mistakes in the second half. And um, Spurs get picking off passes, you know, being able to launch counter-attacks, which aren't always ending in shots, but or at least getting upfield more often, more regularly. Um, and looking across 2022 as a calendar year, uh, they were fifth in that um, sort of annual table, if you like. Uh, the second top scorers with 80, but conceded 43, which is way up from Liverpool, Man City, who all had around, I think, 25 to 30 goals conceded. So um, as Mark says, yeah, the defence is a big issue there. One of the things I find most interesting, something that Michael touched on, which is the fact that quite often... They have such good spells from behind when the onus is on them to attack and break down set defences, much more so than, than at nil-nil. But the function of their of their tactics at nil-nil broadly seems to, to be keep the game fairly low margin and, and, and look to counter-attack. If, if they're good, Michael, at one nil down, at forcing the issue, but not particularly strong at nil-nil, borne out by the fact they concede the first goal quite so frequently, then... How does it stand to reason that Conte would continue with this style of play? They've proven to be pretty good when they need to be. So how can you justify playing like this at nil-nil? Yeah, it's a funny one. I mean, I suppose the opposition tactics have often changed and they're often sitting deeper and kind of defending for their lives. And I think in those situations, Spurs are pretty good. They've got very good crosses of the ball. Kane has been excellent in the air this season. I must say he's scored more headed goals so far this season than he has in any complete season of his Tottenham career. Whether you want to just be kind of whipping balls into the box from from the get-go, I don't know. But it does seem to be a a pretty good strategy later on. I think of the Bournemouth game in particular where it was just kind of all hands to the pump. Um, and it's the kind of situation you get in the last 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but can't you, as, as you talk about teams, you know, just setting up to defend for their lives... It's accepted that Tottenham don't quite have the quality of Manchester City, for example, of Arsenal. But the top teams do engineer the game to be like that generally at 0-0. Against the other, or many of the other top six clubs, the opposition are more or less defending for their lives from the very first whistle. So is it the, the fact that Spurs cannot engineer that or that they they just haven't been able to? Maybe a bit of both, but I think... Conte probably looks at his attacking options and thinks with Son and to a certain extent Kulusevski, although he's been out a lot, so Hill or Richarlison, whoever's been playing there, they're kind of suited to breaking into space and, and the wing-backs as well are very good at breaking in behind the last line. Um, so maybe he doesn't want to be kind of constantly in control of possession and taking the game to the opposition. He wants to play a bit more reactively with space to break into. So they end up playing this way where they're almost constantly looking to score the type of goals they scored when they beat Manchester City uh, 3-2 at the Etihad last year, kind of back to front passing moves. But of course, if if you can't engineer those situations, nothing's really happening. Um and that has been the case. I think particularly in some of the big games. I mean, often the passing has just been really bad. Away at Arsenal, just Son wasted a couple of really good opportunities to put Kane in behind. Away at Chelsea, their passing was poor. Manchester United, they couldn't play through the, the press. You know, and it's... I mean, I know that they're, they're, those are the games against the, the tough opponents. But it's those games where I kind of always really fancy Tottenham to be able to play this way um, successfully. And they haven't. I think they've got a weird situation where their best goal scorer 
arguably the best goal scorer is also their best playmaker. Um, not many teams have a number nine that's you know such a good passer, and you do want to use that. But obviously, you then got to compensate and build up. Um, obviously, we look at City as a comparison this season. Maybe Jesus for Arsenal as well. You've got number nines that probably want to play sometimes wider, but definitely more towards the last line of defence. Not always coming uh, coming in so much. I think they really lack a ball carrying centre back or a really good um, sort of centre back in that first phase that can you know break lines. It's I think a lot longer and often bigger, wider diagonals rather than passes always going through. And I think because of that, they then become reliant on the likes of Hoiberg to sort of drop deeper um, and then sort of dictate it from that like quarterback role, if you like. And I think the lack of that sort of really good progressive centre-back means they have to play a three. And I think uh, Doherty last night was a great example of having a wing-back who's good at playing further forward. To be an outlet, that means you don't always have to go into Kane. You've got extra support around him. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about Kane because it's very true that he is their best playmaker. I was listening to um, a podcast called The Extra Inch, which is a Tottenham podcast that just focuses on the tactical side of things, which is very good, actually. And there's a guy in there, Nathan, who made an interesting point that actually for most of this season, Kane hasn't been doing that. It's almost like there's been a conscious tactical decision for him to play as a number nine rather than coming deep. And I hadn't actually considered that, but it, it is true. I can't think of many examples this season where he's done what he did, for example, in that game where Son scored four against Southampton, was it start of last season maybe? He hasn't been that instrumental in the playmaking, but he has, like I say earlier, he's scored more headers than anyone else in the Premier League. I think he's got seven, Mitrovic maybe has got four. So it's almost like Conte's made a conscious decision, we're going to make you into more of a target man this season. Um, I don't know why that is, but maybe that has played a role in the, the poor build-up play. Do you think that's affected Son's form as well? I know that he hasn't been exactly clinical in front of goal, but the fact that Kane and Son work so well by Kane dropping in and Son making those runs ahead, and again, we've spoken about it suits it much better if teams play a higher line for the space to be into. But Son, we can all kind of agree, has not been anywhere near as prolific, but also his all-round performance hasn't been quite as good this season. Do you think it's almost that Kane's maybe occupying similar spaces or similar runs that, that he would normally look to make compared with last season where he was so prolific. I don't necessarily know the answer to that question, but I'm just trying to think of ways that, as to why Son has maybe dropped off in, in the same way he has. If it's an intentional tactic for Kane to play higher up, um, then it may be that he's kind of treading on the toes of Son in, in a couple of spaces here and there. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, Son's been really poor. I mean, obviously shared the golden boot last year. He's only really played well in one game this season, and that was actually when he came on as a sub. Mm against Leicester and got a hat-trick aside from that he's been not just not scoring but I think probably trying to do too much as well it's almost like there's been a slight shift that he's involved more in build-up play than he used to be and Kane is involved less in build-up play than he used to be and I'm, I'm not quite sure why that has has happened maybe you can look at Kane's goal scoring numbers and say it's worked for him but certainly hasn't worked for Son just to underline that point about Kane's sort of um, change, I was going to say evolution, but maybe it doesn't feel like an evolution if he's getting worse or doing something less. But uh, he was joint top for three balls in the Premier League last season, which probably isn't a huge surprise. But if you take that figure per 90, that was 0.66. So you're looking at, I don't know, one every game and a bit that he's completing. That's down to 0.2 this season. So the frequency is, you know, completely fell off a cliff. Um, 25 players have completed more three balls than him this season. Um, so it's not, not even a slight change. It's, it's a massive drop off, really. I've been interested to hear you guys talk about both today and, and on previous episodes Spurs's build-up play seeming laboured at times and, and just not being particularly impressed with it, um, particularly with, with patterns of play and build-up between the back three, uh, the midfield two, and actually you know, effectively getting the ball into the final third and creating dangerous situations in that manner. 
Michael, I wondered if you had a strong memory of Conte's Chelsea, who, who won the league title, scoring 85 goals, you know, over two goals a game in that season. Um, my recollection isn't as strong as I'd like it to be, but on that particular aspect, in terms of the build-up, of course, we know they played with a, a three at the back as well. Um, how did that look? And, and were they easier to watch in that regard? Or were they just better in other areas of the pitch than this Tottenham side? I think they were easier to, to watch. They probably had forward players who were better at receiving the ball to feet. I think that was a a feature. I mean, you could give the ball to Hazard in any situation and he'd kind of sort you out. But yeah, I mean, they played David Luiz, who, who was a fantastic distributor in the centre of the three. And they also had Azpilicueta who could push forward a bit, even if he wasn't necessarily the most cultured on the ball. I think he could bring it forward. It's been funny this season. There haven't been that many good kind of patterns when they've built up. But there's been some signs of life. I mean, Longley's passing, I think, in the past uh, couple of games has been pretty impressive. He can float the ball over the top well. Um, and Eric Dyer, I mean, he's been a strange one because he's played most of the season at, in the centre of the three, where I think he's actually looked quite poor defensively at times. But there was a couple of games away at Bournemouth and I think in the second half of the game at Anfield where he played to the right of the three and somehow became like this kind of... I mean, I was going to go OTT with my comparison there, but his crossing was fantastic from almost a right-back position. <laughs> what were you going to say? No, I'm not going to say. <laughs> I was going to say it was like Trent Alexander-Arnold, but it wasn't quite. But it was that kind of... It was that kind of role. And actually, that is kind of similar to what Azpilicueta was doing in his second season at Conte. If you remember, he was um, getting loads of assists for Morata at the start of that season. So at times, the fullback, uh, the, the wide uh, centre-backs are pushed on. Well, Ben Davies can do it on occasion. But it's almost like it's, it's reliant on individuals just to gamble a bit and push forward. It's not like they're really popping the ball around and you know, shifting the opposition to a side and then playing out through the other flank. It's just one guy goes, right, I'm going to have to do something here. And that's not really what you expect from a Conte team. Well, what we have come to expect from a Conte team is a three at the back formation. I'm pretty confident that that won't change anytime soon. But Liam, as a tactically minded individual, looking at the squad, uh, looking at the strengths and weaknesses from what we've seen and the strengths and weaknesses individually, is there an argument that Conte could or should uh, be a little bit more flexible with his system and its structure? It's probably yes and no, right? Um, there's always adjustments you can make, I think, particularly concern with certain opposition. Um, I think Brentford are a really great example. I know they're not as necessarily good at, in terms of individual quality, but a team that like to switch between shapes, but sort of consistently across the top clubs. We've seen Liverpool very closely tied to a 4-3-3. Arsenal this season have been pretty consistently unchanged under Arteta. I think that's something that you know the the big six sides want to have. They want this consistency, I guess, even if it's just psychologically to, you know, we're that good that we're not going to change for another team, whether that be the right or wrong sort of move to make. Um, and I think the central defenders they've got in particular do suit a three more. I don't think they're particularly, um, and the, the full-back slash wing-backs that they have, I, I think are suited to that sort of setup rather than having, um, yeah, a back four and, and more midfielders, so to speak. You're right, Liam. I agree that the, the players that they have are more suited to a, a back three. I think if Spurs did go to a back four, I think what it would obviously allow is to to then potentially have three players in the, the middle, in, in midfield, which I know is probably at odds with the, the style that Conte wants to, to play with, but they could then dominate that central space a little bit more and still be able to have three players up front in in Son, Kane and Kulisewski because when they have 
moved to three in midfield, it's been at the expense of more of a three-five-two, and then you've got to compromise the, the forward line. Um, and I think you reported on it, Michael. I think you were at the game when the Everton game springs to mind um, with Spurs, where they brought on Bissouma for Richarlison, and then it allowed Bentancur and, and Hoiberg to kind of support from midfield and support the attack and, and create more kind of overloads in more attacking areas and outnumber, um, you know, get bodies more in that way. So I think that wing-backs are obviously so important to the way that Conte likes to play, but it doesn't feel like he's quite got the the quality to implement it. So that could be another way to try and get players forward, maybe in more central spaces, um, by maybe moving to a 4-3-3. I mean, it's a funny one because there's been quite a few games this season where they've changed formation and then they've improved significantly. So against Leicester, they switched to 3-5-2 and then Son ran riot. Against Everton, like you say, they they switched to 3-5-2 and they won the game. But then they started with 3-5-2 against Bournemouth and were quite poor. And the comeback came after they went to 3-4-3. And earlier in the season, for about the last 25 minutes away at Stamford Bridge, they looked very good when they moved to 4-2-4, really, which was the uh, the formation Conte used to favour back in the day when he started off at Juventus. So... It's tough to separate that from the fact they just always improve after half time. So, you know, you can't really draw any lessons from any of this. It's just, yeah, change something at half time and they tend to be better. Um, I still think the 3 4 3 makes most sense on paper. Um, but at times they are getting outnumbered in midfield. I thought that was pretty obvious against Aston Villa. Aston Villa played a very tight four-man midfield and just the the guys in the wide positions, I think it was Wendy and McGinn were just always creeping in behind the two in midfield. Bissouma, I don't think, has, has played very well since his move to Tottenham. He doesn't seem to understand his role in a two. So yeah, there are there are some quite fundamental, I'd say structural issues with, with how they're playing in in uh, in terms of the formation. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So that's the tactics. I think... We should talk about other aspects of this. Uh, certainly, some of the aspects that Antonio Conte himself, I think, would would think it's fair for us to discuss. Um, he he's got some pretty strong thoughts and has has come out fighting a few times on on whether or not Spurs' results and their performances should be considered underperforming. Um, Post Aston Villa. He said, I continue to repeat that last season we made a miracle. It happened. Why? Because we played only one competition and we played with 12 or 13 players that didn't have injuries in the last 15 games. I remember very well in the summer, people talked about Tottenham as title contenders, but in my experience, it was a bit crazy to see this. To become title contenders, to have a team ready to fight to win something, you need to have a solid foundation, which means 14 or 15 strong players with quality and the other young players to develop. Michael, when he says this, is he being realistic or, or is this a, a case of managers using the press to essentially manage expectations to help themselves in, in one of the few ways that they can publicly? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I, I did go back and look at his lineups at the back end of last season. He was right. They didn't get any injuries and he basically just rotated one or two players every game. So they did get quite lucky in that respect. But if he was talking about that as being a, a group of 12 or 13 players and he needs 15 
I mean, they brought in Richarlison, who I think everyone agreed was a really good addition in the front three. They brought in Perisic, who can play in either wing-back position really well. Basuma, I don't think, has, has worked out particularly well. Um, but at the time, I think it's fair to say that, you know, most people thought that was a um, a pretty good move. And Longley's come in to offer, I'd say, a bit of an upgrade on, on Ben Davies at left-sided centre-back. So... I mean, they don't have a really deep squad. You can't look at the 19th, 20th best player and think that they're really top quality. But I do think they've got enough to be doing better, to be honest. And I must say, I look back at um, Christmas, I look back at my pre-season predictions, which thankfully weren't published on The Athletic, hmm. kept to myself. Um, and I had Tottenham done to finish second. So I clearly really fancied wow. them to make a good, uh, a good run at the title. And yeah, you can look at the league table and... Uh, it's not disastrous at the moment. Uh, as we're speaking, they are two points off the top four, having played a game more than Manchester United. But yeah, we did expect them to be a little bit better than this and, and basically take a step forward from last season. When you know, We shouldn't ignore the fact that Conte took them over when they were in a bit of a bad situation. And it was a very good job to get them to finish top four. But I don't really understand what the excuse is for not pushing on. Well, he would also like to flag up the, the fact of playing in more than one competition, right? So playing in Europe this season uh, is is has been discussed by Conte as something of a poison chalice um, with the squad being pretty stretched. Uh, Tim and Liam wrote a piece, Tim Spears, that is, and Liam, um, when questioned about Spurs' lacklustre first half before the win over Marseille in November, Conte's assistant, Christian Stellini, said, we are playing a lot and sometimes you have to manage the energy. Uh, same question again, uh, Michael, and I'll come to you because I, I, I'm pretty sure you've mentioned this sort of thing quite a lot, um, by which I mean, you know, teams playing... Uh, on a, on a domestic and a continental front um, versus those who who maybe haven't made continental competitions and how much of a help or a hindrance that can be um, can be a little bit overlooked, which is why I'm surprised you had Spurs in second, given that you knew that they were heading <laughs> to play in Europe. Yeah, for sure. But you look at Conte's record, he's usually very good in the league and, and very poor in the Champions League. I mean, he's never really had a side progressing to the the business end of the Champions League. So I expected the same pattern would, would happen again. Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of, of a factor and it was a condensed first half of the, the season for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, they have got a bigger squad. They have got players they can rotate. They've got, they didn't just bring in players who kind of played in one position. Richarlison and Perisic and Basuma can all play kind of multiple roles within that system. So I thought it was going to be perfect for rotation, but um, no, it hasn't worked out that way. Mark, we wondered before the World Cup how much the Winter World Cup would have an impact on things like player fatigue, load management, those sorts of of, uh, conversations. You've actually looked into which Premier League sides had players who played the most minutes at the Qatar World Cup. Where, Where did Spurs wash out in that? Yeah, I mean, on the note of kind of fatigue in the squad, I feel like it's a little bit of a a narrative as much as anything even though I did sort of include it in the piece because you think of if it weren't for the World Cup you'd realistically expect to to have players play a similar number of minutes for their club at this stage you know of a normal season but yeah I basically did a bit of a a health check at at each club after the the World Cup had finished and first of all Spurs had the fourth most squad members away at the World Cup among all the teams in the the Premier League they had 11 players um, away so that's disruptive in itself but I also looked at the the most minutes plays yeah among all the um, the Premier League players and they had four players in the the top 20 um, in terms of the most minutes played obviously Christian Romero and um, Hugo Lloris playing uh, making it to the final Perisic playing the same number of games because of obviously the, the third place playoff and 
Harry Kane also being ever present for for England. I think that as much as anything, the the type of players there are interesting because it goes right through the the spine of the team. It's it's regular starters for Spurs, not necessarily people who you could rotate when they obviously come back into the side. So maybe there's a slight hangover there, but. That being said, we've spoken about it already. Kane has looked so, so sharp since mm. coming back. So it doesn't seem like he's really affected. The whole narrative again being, is he going to yeah have the, the hangover of the penalty miss? Far from it. He's been as good as he's ever been since since coming back. So yeah, it could be maybe grappling a, a reason as to why there might be fatigue, but it, it seems like it could also be an, a narrative depending on you know a bit of outcome bias. Liam, the transfer window's open. Tottenham have the... Uh, have the option of adding to their squad should they want to. Uh, are there any particular parts of the squad that you think uh, in which they could really strengthen? It'd be difficult to do, I think, too much good business now. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that they need an upgrade for Lloris at some point. Um, I know that might not be a hugely sort of popular opinion. I appreciate he's pretty close to sort of a legend in, in those parts um, and has been a real sort of long-time servant. But I, I don't think the shot-stopping, and if you look at sort of the, the post-shot XG numbers on, on FB Ref, uh, a few years back he was sort of preventing nine additional uh, nine or ten additional goals sort of every season, one of the best keepers in the league, and now um, he's at average or even dipping below it this season. I think he's conceded four goals, um, fewer than he'd expected to be, um, so he's conceded more sorry than, um, than an average goalkeeper would be expected to. And I've not been convinced by his kicking either. I think this adds into Spurs and sort of their build-up. Um, we spoke about not having great sort of centre-backs and needing these patterns of play rather than being sort of principle driven um, and even his long kicking and I, I noticed it in the World Cup that I don't think he's great at kicking over long distance in terms of finding players in advanced positions um, and I think you can pair that to the top sides now I think Rams has a great comparison of someone who I think kicks really well over distance uh, can help as we say get teams out of trouble particularly because they're not a hugely high possession team um, and will often have to sort of you know play from goalkeeper um, I think that could be in the summer maybe not a immediate direct replacement but they definitely need I think uh, even some more competition there I mean, I think I'd go along with the Dolores shout. I think that's kind of fair to say. I think one of the blind spots of of the post-shot XG numbers as well is that you can't, even though you've shown, Liam, that there's been on a a downward slide, that you can't, even then, you can't necessarily account for the the quality of the save made. You can account for the quality of the shot, but the save made itself, and a fair few, I think, of, of the good saves or the saves that... Loris has, has made recently have actually kind of parried it back into dangerous areas and granted it's small sample size and I've obviously got a few examples to mind but you think of that Aston Villa goal the the one that Buendia scored but it was sort of parried into into the path of Ollie Watkins uh, you know only a few days ago he sort of has that about him where it's it's not necessarily saves that then convincingly push it away from danger so I think that's kind of a, an issue that seems to be continuing as a trend but in terms of other sort of reinforcements to the squad, I think that they do need another central midfielder. I know that, as Michael said, that um, Skip isn't the most convincing. I think he's a bit of a steady Eddie, but I think they need a bit more of a, a creative uh, midfielder. I think, from what I'm hearing and seeing, that Ruslan Malinovsky is someone that they're, they're interested in. I think that would be a really good move simply because he's also a, a versatile player. He can play wide, um, but he can play more, pick up more central spaces in central attacking midfield and be... What I think, as I said, was the the issue that sometimes that they're struggling with is connecting that that midfield and attack, or right from the back all the way through to attack, and he could offer something different there, or a player of that kind of mould to be able to to link the attack a bit more in central areas rather than what Conte maybe likes to do typically is to obviously go wide with the the wing back. So 
I don't think January will be the the market to to find a, a really good find in the same way that they've they did really well last last January. Obviously bringing Bentancur in and Kudelski in, I don't think they'll be able to do that again. But um, I do think that's another area where they could strengthen. I suppose we can just about start to reflect on the quality of their summer transfer window. Certainly in terms of of you know short term performance and and what the additions have added. Um, Mark, talk me through Spurs' summer transfer window. There was there was quite a lot of um, good noises being made at the time. How much of an impact have these players had? I think we've spoken about a lot of them so far. I think that Perisic was sort of nailed on to to be a success with obviously the experience that that he brings. But actually looking at the the numbers, his creative numbers from, from well, I was going to say from that left-hand side, but it can be from all over the pitch, has been really impressive. I think eight assists in all competitions this season and granted it does include set pieces in the number I'm about to give but his expected assists of 0.29 per 90 um, shows that he's creating chances worthy of an assist once every three games uh, and no Spurs player is higher than than that so far this season in the Premier League and that's the, the eighth highest in the league amongst players with uh, with 500 minutes or more so it shows just how impressive he has been um, Richarlison obviously not had the minutes that we'd expect him to because of injury struggles and things like that. But he, you know he's been in the Premier League long enough for us to know that he's a he's a very good player. So you you can imagine that he's he's going to do well eventually. And I think you think of the the four options that the front four options that that Spurs have. So obviously Kane, Son, Richarlison, and Kulusevski. There's there's not that many players that you choose over them when they're all fit and firing. I think the issue is that they've not all been really on form at exactly the same time or all fit at the same time um, so far this season. So I think that's a worthy point to make. Um, Jed Spence can't get a game, um, which is just a shame. Um, there's the, the right wing back sort of issues kind of still ongoing in terms of Conte fancying a player for a, a long period to actually play that position. But That's it, yeah, isn't it? It's not, it's not just we would like to see this talented young player that you spent quite a lot of money on, Liam, but also he happens to play a position that where things haven't looked that great this season. Yeah, and that's that's the critique, right, in terms of how you do or don't go about solving problems. Um, I, I understand that he maybe wants consistency more than others. Uh, I think their best signing this summer didn't even come on the pitch. I think Gianni Vio, uh, as a set-piece coach, has been, a. I know we've discussed him before, but it's been a really key addition. Um and linking on a lot of their goals when they have came back in games, set pieces have still played a key role there. Um, I know Mark's got all the stats out in terms of how high they rank for set pieces in terms of goals and chance creation, but um, it's not just that they're scoring off set pieces like late in games when they are winning to to you know add to a lead and sort of put gloss on um, gloss on a win. It's at times in games where they are level. Um, I think they had goals against Bournemouth um, late on from set pieces. I think maybe against Leeds as well. Um, and Ahmed Walid has done a you know great sort of dive onto this. Uh, I think around the time with the North London derby to sort of break down the routine how it gets Kane at the back post to be spare quite a lot and um, I think it gets a lot more out of sort of Hoiberg as well um, Benton Koo when they can you know be alive for those second phases uh, and you've got I think a set of centre-backs in particular Eric Dyer who um, sort of have some aerial prowess too so that definitely utilises their strengths I mean yeah just on the note of set pieces no one scored more than Spurs um, their 10 goals from set pieces so far this season and we, yeah, we've noted before on site just how, how good they are from the, the different routines. I think particularly in finding the, the back post with the, the flick-ons, there's a whole host of different routines as we know that they, they have in their in their playbook. But aside from the actual total goals, which doesn't obviously account for the opportunity, we can look at how many set plays have been taken per goal. So 
fewer set plays per goal shows that you're being essentially more efficient with the opportunities that you have. Um, and only Fulham have had fewer set plays um, per goal than, than Spurs is 14.9. So just a, a little addition there to show that it's not just, you know, they've had loads of chances to to take set plays and score from them, but they've been really efficient with, uh, with the opportunities they have had. Up the Gianni Vio. Um, let's finish off with a, a sort of wider discussion. Michael, uh, the future of Tottenham Hotspur, the future of Antonio Conte. I think because he's been such a big part of, of life in elite club football across Europe for such a long time, there is a sense that Conte is a, a real known quantity, right? And, and, and within English football discourse, there, there's always a bit of a a sense that Spurs themselves and the way they operate and Daniel Levy are, are quite a known quantity as well. I get the feeling that it is expected and always has been that Conte and Spurs would be a, a fairly short marriage, right? That it wouldn't last forever. It w- wouldn't be finally the one that Conte properly settles down with. And and therefore the question was and is, would there be some silverware, some tangible short-term success to, to show for, 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 for that short marriage? Do, do you still think that that is going to be the case you any suggestion that Conte and Spurs might might last a bit longer than some people expect I don't know it's tough to say I mean as always with Conte he's always trying to hint that he is a bit unhappy and wants more um yeah I I really don't know in that sense Uh, I think he did a very good job for them last season I don't think too many other managers would have got them into the top four from the position where he started from but yeah they haven't pushed on this season it was always going to be a big ask for them to be actually winning uh a major trophy. Um, but yeah, they're, they're short of where I expected they would be. And if hypothetically they, they finish fifth or sixth and, and things don't get tangibly much better in the next few months, hard to say what they will or won't do in European competition, do you expect it to, to come to an end this summer just because of the, the, the nature of, of Conte and how things go for him generally? I really, I, I, to be honest, I don't know. I um, I think he's very difficult to read. I can imagine him maybe staying on I mean, he's on a pretty good deal there. His, his his wages are very high, it must be said. If he if he has somewhere better to go, I know there's been chat about maybe him going back to Juventus. Maybe that could happen. Um, well, do you think that's more? Do you think do you think that would be the more likely reason for departure than Spurs deciding that they want to change direction again? I would expect so. I mean, you know, the contract. He's a good manager. He's got a very good track record as a manager, and his contract is is very expensive. They'd have to tear up. A very expensive contract for him and all his assistants. So it'd be a massive, a massive shout for them to just fire him. So I, yeah, I can't see that. I can't see that happening. Is there a question to be asked about the managerial recruitment process here, Mark? There's different ways of of recruiting managers when you're a, a club at Tottenham's level. Whether it's a more of a project manager, which is is not the pigeonhole that Conte would be put in. He'd be put in the whole of of a win now manager. Is is that is there an issue with the way that they've approached that? No, I don't think there's ever a, a, an issue with signing someone like Antonio Conte to be your manager. But I think they're they're trying to show rightfully, I think Spurs, that they can attract managers who are among the elite or or maybe previously elite in, in the, the mould of uh, Jose Mourinho across Europe. And that they obviously can attract a, a higher calibre of manager now with the, the new stadium that they've got, the, the facilities, trying to kind of go up a level in in all facets of of the club and not kind of be essentially have foundation to to their club structure rather than it just be kind of I guess flimsy I think that the the Nuno Espirito Santo appointment was just a mistake I think we can just 
leave that one and, and kind of move on. But I think that if it doesn't work out with Conte in the, the medium term, then it, it might be that the next manager is more of maybe a longer term appointment in the mould of a, a Pochettino when he first came in, obviously did so, so well at, at Southampton. It was clear that he was on a, an upward trajectory, but obviously then that would mean that they'd be less likely to to be guaranteed immediate success in the, the short term, which is ultimately what they want. So I suppose it is just choosing which they'd prefer. And I, I listened to the, the View from the Lane podcast uh, this week, and I think that it was a good point in saying that as Spurs fans, you don't necessarily expect to, to be winning loads and loads of silverware, but we just want kind of good, entertaining football. Um, so I don't know. I feel like whichever they sort of have, it's always the grass is, is always greener. But if they were to to make the next move, whenever that may be for a new manager, it might be more of a, a longer term um, project manager. It seems like some Tottenham fans really have turned against Daniel Levy. And I've even seen um, a suggestion from some fans that even though they're not impressed with Conte's work so far, because he's calling out the board, uh, they're actually on his side, which really feels like he's into full Ralph Rangnick mode. <laughs> but I feel, I mean, I do sympathise with, with Levy because it's not often that you get a side going from kind of outside the top six or the top four, or whatever it is at the time, into being an established part of that. And he's, you know, he's presided over the building of a, by all accounts, a fantastic new training ground. They've got possibly the best club stadium in Europe. I don't think that's an exaggeration. They've got a manager who has won a lot throughout his career. And they've got a pretty good squad, I think. I mean, not that deep, but it's not a bad squad at all. So I, I must say, I, I, I'd be interested to read something extensive from a, a Tottenham fan explaining why uh, they want Levy out. I know he's made some poor decisions. Mark touches on the Espirito Santo thing and didn't work out. I think to his credit, he reversed that pretty quickly. I mean, it's not often you get a, a board just going, yeah, we made a mistake. We're going to have to fix that and put, put it right. Okay, it would have been better if they didn't get it wrong to start with. But, you know, I think some credit for accepting they were wrong. I can't really see a great argument for wanting them out unless unless the solution is that they want a you know a, you know astonishingly rich owner to come in and pump money into the club like some other clubs that have been taken over. I, I would prefer it if more clubs were run pretty much like how Tottenham were run, to be honest. I think the problem they've got at the moment is seeing the other clubs around them, the top sides that have had long-term success with a manager for an extended period of time or look like they're on route to achieving that. Obviously, Arsenal was there, you know, very close neighbours, you know, having trusted, quote-unquote, the process under Arteta um, and now having success because of that. Obviously, that doesn't just mean you can bring in any manager, stick with them for years and it's going to work. There needs to be things that go well. Um, Chelsea look like they're trying that too with someone like Graham Potter. Obviously, City, we know, um, and Liverpool too. So, and United, I think, are another team that are probably around that, you know, um, region of Spurs where they're not quite going to reach the top two, but they're going to be pushing for those Champions League European spots. And it's kind of that third through sort of fifth, sixth um, area that's quite competitive and really, you know, can't be too easy to predict, I think, before a season. So I think now, and that shouldn't necessarily influence their decision making too much because they need to operate in a way that's going to be best for them, best for them long term. I appreciate if there is a desire to win a trophy that you might want to bring in someone like Conte a bit more short term. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And looking at some of the age of the um, and the performances of some of their top players, Kane and Son in particular, I think you look at Larissa's age, it's not really a team that you maybe want to look at and go four years time. You want to look at now and go, these are players that are probably at their peak, maybe coming off their peak a little bit and will still be really, really good, arguably world-class for a few years to come. But um, I think you'd look at 
I think we could quite easily be having this discussion in four years' time where you go, oh, that was a big waste of Spurs not trying to cash in and utilise the talent that they've got now. Obviously, they came very close a few years back with the Champions League. So, um, yeah, as Michael and Michael said, I, I think it was a worthwhile um, you know, option and, and uh, target to go for. Just one last thing to say about Tottenham, which I don't think we touched upon fully, is I think the absence of, of Kuliszewski has been a massive issue for them this season. I mean, the stats since he joined about a year ago are pretty incredible. I mean, roughly 20 games where he started and 20 games where he hasn't, near enough. And they're scoring twice as many goals when he's in the side as when he's not. It's about 2.7, 2.8 to 1.3, 1.4. And that really, it, I mean, it fits with what you see when you're watching Tottenham. He's a completely different player to what they have in in the other um, options out wide. One, because he plays a bit narrower and I think he connects midfield and attack, which has obviously been an issue. And second, he's just really good in tight spaces, which I don't think Son, um, Richarlison, Lucas, Hill, whoever's playing, they're just not the same type of player. Um, and his his injury at the start of October came at a point where uh, Spurs were actually joint top in points terms. They were joint top with City. They weren't playing that well, but they were getting results. And um, I, you know, he's had a couple of injury setbacks as well since uh, since that initial one. And it just feels like as soon as he came, he and Ben Tunko, of course, who's been very good at times this season, has helped to transform the team. But they just don't have a replacement for him. And I think basically that is the key issue and why they've struggled this season. Well, the last word goes to Kuliszewski, but it's been a, a really interesting period discussing Tottenham with you guys. A massive thank you for, for, for all of it, really. An interesting time to talk Spurs. In the next nine weeks, they have got a very, very spicy slate of fixtures, including league games at home to Arsenal. They've got to play Manchester City home and away. They've got to go to seventh place Fulham, away to Leicester as well, plus games against West Ham and Chelsea. And two legs against AC Milan. It's going to be fascinating to see how things go and, and maybe check in on them uh, and take the temperature and, and look at Conte's in-tray uh, in 10 weeks' time. Please do let us know what you'd like us to be discussing uh, on this podcast. We've got a, a pretty long leash. We're interested in in just about everything when it comes to the tactical and technical side uh, of football and its trends. So please do get in touch with us. We'd like to hear from you. You can comment uh, on the Athletic app uh, on the podcast page uh, or you can send us a tweet as well. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, this week and of course if you'd like to spend your 2023 reading the best quality football writing on the whole of the internet then you can sign up to The Athletic today uh, theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the place to go you'll pay £1.99 a month for 12 months to read Michael, Liam, Mark and dozens of others uh, writing about the beautiful game uh, and a ton of other sports as well so sign up to The Athletic today subscribe to this podcast feed and we'll talk again next week on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast The Athletic